Episode 245, Arithmetically Impossible. Today, I speak with Al Lewis from Quizify about the wellness industry. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. The fear of cannibalizing sales of existing products is often cited as a reason why established firms delay the introduction of, in brackets, better approaches. That's a Clay Christensen quote from The Innovator's Dilemma. So I want to talk about the wellness industry today. In the parlance of the famous or infamous, depending on where your revenue is coming from, Al Lewis, traditional two-employee types of wellness programs are healthcare done to employees, not for employees. They're like forced healthcare. Generally, these programs tout cost savings to the employer. And also generally, these programs aren't optional. They may include sticks as well as carrots, and sometimes sticks that are dressed up as carrots but are actually still sticks. The wellness industry is big business, like regulated by the SEC big in some cases. That's why this Clay Christensen quote is so apropos. Despite the fact that your average wellness program is often, let's just say, heartily suboptimal from a cost, quality, and satisfaction standpoint, most employers continue to basically force employees into them. Many brokers continue to offer these ineffective programs as well. I mean, why wouldn't they? Everybody in the supply chain is making money. Besides, it's time-consuming and maybe even risky to try to re-educate an employer organization who might not know any better. It's one of those great examples where doing the right thing isn't as profitable or safe as exploiting outdated thinking as long as the market will bear. Employers are getting wise to a lot of things right now. I'd suggest a fast follow-on is going to be their view of these wellness programs. It will be interesting to see if current vendors are able to compete with the newer solutions that actually work and which employees actually appreciate. It will also be interesting to see if there's any backlash against the supply chain that continues to offer up these solutions, especially given some of the lawsuits that are currently underway and all the research which is eminently available. After about 10 people wrote in looking to hear an interview with him, today I am honored and pleased to speak with the one and only Al Lewis. Al is basically synonymous with wellness programs, analysis, and evaluation. One of my favorite things about Al is that he is as controversial as he is respected. He's been called both the founding father of disease management, and he's also been called the troublemaker-in-chief of the wellness industry. Regardless of your opinion of Al's views, his integrity and commitment and rigorous analytical approach is open and shut. Al is the author of two books, which you can find in the show notes. He's also the CEO of Quizify. Quizify is a company that, and an approach that teaches employees how to get the care they need while avoiding the, air quotes, care they don't. Quizify's claims have been validated, by the way, by the Validation Institute. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Al Lewis, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Well, thank you very much for having me, Stacey. Maybe a good way to start. What's an example of something that's done for employees, which we don't have an issue with? What do those look like? 
subsidized gym memberships, uh, better food in the cafeteria, having farmers markets on site, expanding benefits for, you know, I don't know, fertility or, or parental leave, essentially anything that you don't have to bribe employees to do or find them not to do. And also, it sounds like things that don't necessarily have a harm that could be associated with them. The odds of being harmed are, are essentially non-existent in wellness done for employees. Whereas in wellness done to employees, there's not just tons of anecdotes of people getting harmed, but statistically speaking, the last organization that won an award for being the best wellness company, which is called WellSteps, if you actually looked hard at their data, it turns out that they significantly harmed employees. And in fact, there was an article in Stat News, uh, those of you who don't know, that's the Healthcare Daily newspaper about how WellSteps harmed employees and about how the COOP committee uh, deliberately overlooked the harms because WellSteps was actually on the COOP committee and they wanted to give them an award. Welcome to the wellness industry, Stacey. <laughs> well, and I think that's something that is also very underappreciated just in general. The fact that medical care isn't harmless. That one number that very few take a look at is there's the number needed to treat. How many patients do you have to treat with a certain protocol in order for good things to happen? But then there's also this NNH, which is the number needed to harm. For the number of people that are receiving that protocol or that treatment, how many of them actually get harmed? And where things get dicey is when the number needed to harm is less than or <laughs> not significantly greater, let's just say, than the number needed to treat, because that means for as many people as you're helping, you're hurting. That is absolutely the case. And there are certain vendors that don't seem to understand that. And, and it curiously, quizifies our own mantra, our own catchphrases. Just because it's healthcare doesn't mean it's good for you. And for exactly that reason, wellness done to employees is even worse because the medical system is coming to you whether you want it or not. <laughs> Talk about Yale. The Yale program is a classic example of lining employees up to be screened and then forcing them to be coached. The employees, and these are all, by the way, wage, non-exempt employees, uh, average income in, in Connecticut, which is a high-cost state, is something like thirty-five dollars or $40,000. So these are not people who can afford to just say no to this screening and the coaching. Now, in Yale's defense, their screening is actually done according to the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force guidelines, which puts them in about the top 5 or 10% of all wellness programs. Most wellness programs screen every year because the vendor doesn't want to lose all the revenue associated with screening every three or four years as opposed to screening every year. So if, in fact, the Yale program said, Here's the screening that we recommend. And if you do it, we'll give you a hundred bucks. And this is why you should do it. I would be their biggest supporter. But when they say you must do this and you must also go to the doctor. And if anybody finds anything wrong with you, you must submit to coaching. That's where I draw the line because you're essentially pushing them into the medical system and all sorts of things can go wrong and they don't have the opportunity to get out without being fined. The one thing I would add is that you have all these coaches and coaches, there's no regulations in wellness. You can hire whoever you want. They can say whatever they want. Uh, they can't lose their licenses because there are no licenses. So there is right in the, uh, the complaint that was filed against Yale by the unions 
is a story of an employee, a named employee, and this is just like the worst of 10 to 10 stories where she had had breast cancer, uh, so she had a double mastectomy, and then was forced to get into this program, and the coach told her she needed to go get a mammogram or else she was going to get fined $1,300. I mean, I mean what, what do you say to something like that? Like, how did you keep it out of the newspaper? I, I know how they kept it out of the newspaper was uh, you actually had to read the entire complaint, which was like 60 pages, in order to find this stuff. That's egregious, obviously. You just think about the psychological impact of getting a double mastectomy to begin with, and then you've got somebody on the other end of the line insisting that now you're going to take pictures of that. It's just horrifying. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't make this stuff up, Stacey. You know, if I actually, if they weren't in the complaint, people would accuse me of making it up. But help me understand, like, let's just say somebody's got a multiple chronic conditions, which tends to be the case, right? Like, so they've got some cardiovascular, they've got high blood pressure, maybe they've got diabetes or prediabetes, you know, like, so they've got some things that are going on, say. What is the downside of just coaching? You know what I mean? Like, so it's just a conversation. It's not necessarily that they're going to go to the hospital or get sent to the hospital for anything. Could you just articulate, like, what is the NNH there? Like, what's the number needed to harm and like, why? That's a great question. And I'm going to give it two answers. One is that if the coaching is voluntary and the coach knows what they're doing, it's, it's a very good thing. In fact, that was the basis for the entire disease management industry to begin with. Totally voluntary opt-in. The disease management industry had actual, not just uh, nurses, but nurse practitioners on the phone with these folks who tended to know what they were doing. So that's all on the good news side. The bad news is, uh, number one, when you're forced to have these conversations, it's a different mindset. I mean, you don't, you either have to take this these suggestions, or you have to pretend to take the suggestions or lose money. But number two, oftentimes the information that the coaches give is completely wrong. So they're, they're giving out misinformation and employees are basically being forced to listen to them. That's the issue. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of I was reading a book. I think it was Zeev Neuwirth's book, actually. And he was talking about the difference between a patient and a consumer and how if you say to a room full of people, who here wants to be a patient? No one in the room tends to raise their hand. But if you say who wants to be a consumer, everybody raises their hand. And and basically what that implies is if you ask someone, do you want to be acted upon without any say in the matter? People choose not to go that route. Who would, right? But if you ask people who wants to be in control of your own decisions and make choices by yourself, then obviously that's when all hands shoot up. So it, it almost seems like it's the same dichotomy. It is. And that was a, that was a, a great book. I, I did a review of, of Zeb Neuwirth's book on my blog as well. I thought his section on, on primary care was the best I'd ever read. But it, it's exactly what you say And in fact, you could actually get vendor quotes. For instance, the CEO of Bravo Wellness said, employees have to be treated like school children. You know, if your child doesn't want to go to school, you know it's good for them, so you still make them go to school. It's the same with getting screened, is you have to to force them to get screened because you know it's good for them. Who wants to be forced to be screened? And and there are also many anecdotes, and I have them on my my website, theysaidwhat.net, just uh, look under anorexia of people who were screened, who were weighed, uh, who had 
eating disorders. And one of the rules of thumb is in eating disorders, you don't obsess with your weight. And yet they were forced to be weighed and multiple, multiple people reported that they relapsed, ended up in the ER, the hospital, uh, all because they were forced to do things that they didn't want to do by a wellness vendor. Why do employers continue to offer these programs? You've just cited like 17 things which are publicly available on the Internet now. <laughs> like, like, why are these things really prevalent? I bet if we surveyed employers, a huge percentage of them are still offering traditional two-employee types of programs. Well, that's, that's a great question. I'll give it a couple answers. One is I always say that wellness, forced wellness, is like communism, pennies, baseball, and Microsoft Outlook. You're probably wondering where I'm going with this. And that <laughs> if they didn't already exist, nobody would invent them. So if somebody came to you out of the blue and said, hey, do you want a coin that costs, that's only worth a fifth of a nickel and costs more to produce than it's, than it's worth, and you're going to leave them all over you know, the house and the, and the street and toddlers are going to eat them, everyone would say no. And likewise, with wellness, if you said, hey, why don't we do something to our employees that's going to cost $100 a year that employees are going to hate? And by the way, they do. It, it, wellness has, a very, has the negative net promoter score uh, that's bad for their health, that all the data, and I do mean literally all the data in the last four or five years shows loses money. What employer is going to say, where do I sign? None of them are. But if you've already started doing this stuff, there's a Mark Twain quote that it's uh, easier to fool people than convince them they've been fooled. Uh, the, the biostatistical anomalies in measuring these outcomes are such that most employers are not trained to measure them. And the vendors will come and say, look at all the high risk people whose risk declined. In other words, look at all the heads that went to tails. And they never tell you the tails that went to heads. There was one vendor, actually Interactive Health was his name, that actually published the tails that went to heads along with the heads that went to tails. And I pointed out that, oh, look, all these people got worse, too. They took that slide out because their business model of these vendors is we're just going to show the improvements. And we're also going to compare participants to non-participants, which turns out to be a completely bogus methodology proven five times, including three times by wellness vendors themselves inadvertently, proven five times to explain 100% of the difference in performance between participants and non-participants just on the basis of the study design, the program itself being irrelevant. But ask an employer, and I do. I mean, I know some of these folks, and one of them, a company you would recognize the name of, said, well, you know, Al, uh, you're right about this, but if we stop doing it now, we're going to have to go explain to the C-suite why we've been doing it all these years when it turns out it doesn't work. It's much easier just to keep doing it. Let's just take that hypothetical. And maybe I'm just very practical, but would that individual, that benefits professional, have to explain why they've been doing it all these years if they changed vendors to some or, or switched up the nature of the program to make it for employees as opposed to two employees? Like, I can't imagine that somebody in the C-suite is going to ride roughshod over somebody for changing vendors or for switching a methodology and continuously improving. We don't say break with the past entirely because actually there are 5% of people who do want to be screened for these things and they would do it without any incentive. And actually, Stacy, I'm one of them. I get my insurance through um, Boston College and Boston College used to screen people every year 
a Boston College carrier is Harvard Pilgrim. Harvard Pilgrim is a client of mine. I or at the time uh, when I had a consulting practice, and I would tell them that you know people are being overscreened. Dot dot dot. Well, they duly reported that back to Boston College, and like a game of telephone, by the time it got to the folks who were actually doing the screening, it became don't screen anybody at all, as opposed to screen every few years according to guidelines. So I'm here saying, where's my screening? You know, I want to be screened every three or four years. So what we say at Quizify is we say, don't get rid of your so-called pry, poke, and prod altogether. Merely offer it as an alternative, and Quizify is another alternative. We say, look, and we have, I can even send it to you. We even have a little one-page flyer on this that says, you can get screened or you can play a set of quizzes. Now you should get screened if you haven't been to the doctor in a while, if you feel like your health status has changed, if you know that you have risk factors, if your parents died young of a chronic disease, you should definitely get screened. Otherwise, play the quizzes. So we give people this choice. Now the choice not only keeps that 5% of people happy who actually want to be screened, but it also, as a major side benefit, prevents exactly the kind of lawsuit that happened to Yale. Because if Yale said to their employees, you have to, I mean, the $1,300 fine is way, way too high, but if they had that same fine, but said to the employees, you could get screened or you can play a set of health literacy quizzes through Quizify, the clinical part of the program meaning the screening, is now voluntary. And the point of the lawsuit against Yale was that the clinical part of the program was involuntary, which is not allowed under the Americans with Disabilities Act. What I've heard you say is that left to their own devices, 5% approximately of employees will get a screening even as per the guidelines, which is not an every year thing. It's an every few year thing. Did I understand that correctly? I'm going to just say, just because I want my data to be fairly infallible, I'm going to say 10% or fewer rather than five. And I would be in that 10% myself. There are plenty of employees who do want to go to the doctor, who do want to know their numbers, but they don't want to know that through the employer. They feel like it's none of the employer's business. So that, which by the way, it isn't. So that 10%, unless you're like a, you know, a fire department or something where people have to know how to run up the stairs in a hurry or something. So that 10%, say there's 50% of people who genuinely want to track their health carefully every year, 40 percentage points are going to want to do it with their own doctor. And 10% are going to say, oh, cool, you're bringing somebody on site, I'll go get screened. I don't need an incentive for that. And I certainly don't want to pay a penalty, but thank you for making this available. In order to reach the remaining percent who may not be getting screened for a good reason. So if we were going to kind of parcel out what's going on with that balance, it could be, you know, someone with an eating disorder, someone who has an actual clinical validated reason why they have a double mastectomy. You know, there are reasons why they're not um, participating in a screening. So that's going to be one cohort. 
then you're going to have maybe another cohort who need education, which is something that you're handling with Quizify. You know, you're you're explaining what the purpose is and what good looks like relative to screening so that these individuals can maybe make the choice to go get screened should they so desire. And then you're probably going to have another bunch who probably know they should get screened, but they don't want to for any number of different reasons. And I'm not sure that that crew if you force them to get screened, anything good would happen anyway. It's certainly correct on the last point. And there's, there are plenty of people who under 40, under 30, that unless they have familial hypercholesterolemia, which they either would know or they would catch the very first time they did get screened and no wellness vendor is going to be of any help to them. They're going to have to um, you know, seriously constrict their diet and exercise quite religiously. Those folks aren't getting screened because they, there's no reason to get screened. I mean, if you if you look at the data, they, people tend to that the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force essentially recommends basically one screening at all under age 35 for males and under age 45 for uh, females. And you're right. I mean, if you force people to get screened, it doesn't matter what the data is going to show. They're not going to do anything about it anyway. Population health management is a term that I've heard applied to. How do you take a group of people who most likely have, let's just say, similar, you know, maybe they're segmented by risk factors, and then you're taking social determinants of health into account and you're helping them achieve certain clinical outcomes? How would that differ from? the wellness programs that we're talking about here. Granted that pop health programs are typically run by healthcare organization, like a provider organization or an insurer. And when you say wellness program, employer tends to spring to mind. The very bright line distinction between the two is that the, the wellness vendors are hunting for disease, what we call a hyperdiagnosis. They're, they're going into a healthy population that basically wants nothing to do with them for the most part. And then bragging to the employer, that's hyperdiagnosis. That's what wellness vendors do. Uh, population health vendors uh, coach people who already have a diagnosis that's legitimate. And that's how they're referred. They're referred because they have a legitimate diagnosis. And in a voluntary fashion, they're helping them to manage those conditions they tend to be better qualified than wellness. Like if you look at a wellness program, for instance, they say things like avoid added sugar. Well, that's not helpful because you don't know where the added sugars are hidden. I mean, one of the things we teach in Quizify is there's 60 different ways of saying sugar. Uh, if you take a Cliff Bar, for example, and you look at the first ingredient, it says organic brown rice syrup. Well, the reason they do that is because people aren't, they're going to see the word organic, they're going to see the word brown rice, they're going to think that's healthy. No, anything ending in syrup is sugar. So just telling people to avoid stuff doesn't do any good. Then when you get into population health, they tend to be better at getting more granular with managing people's diet and not, not so much managing their meds. They're not really allowed to do that, but recommending that they go talk to their doctor about managing the meds and stuff. Let's take a moment and discuss what diagnosis, overdiagnosis, and hyperdiagnosis is. Because one of the things that you have repeated several times is that wellness programs tend to be in the hyperdiagnosis business. I feel like there's a lot of fear here. I think this goes back to the what's 
proving to be not entirely correct thinking like with oncology, that if you you catch a cancer early, that you tend to have better results, which is sometimes true, but sometimes not. I think maybe people feel like it's better to be diagnosed with something than not diagnosed and have this silent thing going on inside of them, which is potentially very dangerous. So, you know, that being said, how would you separate diagnosis over diagnosis from then hyperdiagnosis? I'll give you the example of my uh, former sister-in-law who was in a wellness program that made her go to the doctor and she mentioned to the doctor that she had, that she was feeling tired and maybe it was her thyroid. So the doctor did a few tests. They were inconclusive. Then they did a biopsy for cancer. Then they, were in, then they did a biopsy, also inconclusive for cancer. So she decided it was better to be safe. And she had her thyroid uh, removed and it turned out there was no cancer. So she would have been vastly better off not having been in the wellness program, not going to the doctor. But the nature of the beast is that instead of being really miffed about this whole thing, that now she's going through the rest of her life without a thyroid, uh, instead of being really miffed, she was very grateful for the terrific care that she got in the hospital. So that, that would be overdiagnosis. Like they, they couldn't rule out thyroid cancer. So they went way overboard to make sure that it didn't happen. Now, in fact, there's only about 1,500 people a year die of thyroid cancer. I'm sure she didn't know that statistic, but that's overdiagnosis. Hyperdiagnosis, which is what wellness vendors do, is you go into a population of perfectly innocent employees, you subject them to vastly more screens than the U.S. Preventive Services says that they should do at vastly greater intervals, and then you get giddily happy about all the things that are you're finding that are wrong with these people and how much they have to go to the doctor and how much money you're going to save the employer by finding these things earlier. So hyperdiagnosis combines inappropriate screening with braggadocio by unlicensed wellness vendors. And that's essentially the difference between hyperdiagnosis and overdiagnosis. So hyperdiagnosis is actively pursuing things, looking for things that are wrong. And I interviewed Alex Lickerman on this podcast maybe a year ago, and he said something that's apropos right now. He said, if you pick up a rock, you'll find something underneath it. So basically, <laughs> if you screen someone enough, there is something that you're going to find that is, you know, obviously is completely asymptomatic. Otherwise, the person would have gone to the doctor themselves. You know, the body is full of, as they call, incidental lomas. So if you screen any body part, you're going to find suspicious masses and lumps. And the majority of them are going to turn out to be cysts that, you know, if you'd screen them a month later, are going to go away by themselves. But if you catch those things, then, you know, what winds up happening is a cascade of medical interventions, which anytime you walk into a hospital, you can get an infection. Anytime you get a biopsy, you know, like you get a liver biopsy, you can puncture a lung. I mean, like there's real danger involved in what we're talking about here. And or you get your thyroid removed and then you've got to be on expensive synthetic thyroid hormones for the rest of your life. Like those are the real things that can happen when you start poking around looking for things that aren't causing any issues. And I think that's very well like I don't I don't think this hyperdiagnosis thing is a theory at this point. There have been cascades of studies and whatnot which have been done which really pinpoint very clearly that it's just not a good idea. Am I wrong there? It's not just that you're right. It's actually even worse than you say because the experts are essentially unanimous 
that you shouldn't go around hunting for disease in people who don't have any uh, symptoms. But somehow, the human resources and benefits managers who use companies like Interactive Health don't get this message. They get told by Interactive Health, and I'm using them because they're they claim to be the largest independent uh, vendor, and they also brag about how many tests they do. They have 40 tests on people every year. So, uh, of course, if your tests are 95% you know, accurate. I mean, you're going to find some that are out of range. So it's almost like people don't have access to the internet because if they went to the internet, they'd be horrified at what they're doing to their employees. Just to really shine a spotlight on what we're talking about here, this isn't someone who is suffering from symptoms, who goes to a doctor in an effort to hunt down what's wrong with them, and the doctor brushes it aside and says, you you can't be screened. Like, that is not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about is someone who feels fine. <laughs> There's nothing going on with them, but then is told that they have to go get screened for X, Y, and Z, which may in many cases be even more aggressive than the, the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force. It is indeed ironic, Stacy. that as far as I know, the only program, I mean, there are a couple others, one of the only programs that is USPSTF compliant is indeed Yale that is getting sued. So there is some irony there. But just to, to take your point a, a step further, that is the difference between a screen and a test is that if somebody says to you, and this is the difference between overdiagnosis and hyperdiagnosis, if my sister-in-law had just gone to the doctor and said, you know, I, I might have a thyroid issue, I've been feeling tired, you know, dot, 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 then she gets tested at that point. And then she may or may not end up getting her thyroid out like she did. If, in fact, interactive health goes into the population, screens everybody for thyroid disease, that's a screen. That doesn't require people to say, you know, I'm tired and maybe I have a thyroid issue. That is the key difference. And I think, you know, just the thyroid thing was proven in pretty stark terms in South Korea. South Korea just started and mass screening people for thyroid conditions wound up treating all of these or removing all these thyroids, but yet the rate of thyroid mortality was not impacted at all. So basically, you know, screening all these people and creating all this harm, people who are now have to take artificial thyroid medications, they went through this surgery, it, it effectively affected nothing. The South Korea example is the perfect example of why you shouldn't go around hunting for a disease in a population. In this country, the same thing happened with PSA screening for prostate cancer, is that it became a thing and ridiculous numbers of men had their uh, prostates removed, which is a, a complex surgery that uh, they say a third of the time, but everybody I know uh, suffers either incontinence or impotence as a result of it. And it, the death from prostate cancer did not decline over that period. So the, the guidelines finally got changed so that most people now are basically not supposed to get uh, screened at all. If you're over a certain age, you can have a conversation with your doctor and get screened. I myself, knowing the data as well as I do, I'm never letting anybody near my prostate. Those are tough individual choices to make. But I think the point that you're getting at there is that it's an individual choice. That if someone might not feel the same as you. And if they choose to go and have a test done because they feel like they're at risk for any number of different reasons, that's one thing. But if en masse, just everybody is, is kind of, you know, like forced to queue up and, and undergo a test, like that's when things get go awry. Exactly. And that's what people were, were doing with the, the, the PSA, the wellness vendors, 
Uh, we're all testing for it. In fact, uh, I got screened at the uh, Midwest Business Group on Health a couple of years ago, and I specifically said to them, do not tell me my PSA level. Well, they went ahead and they told me my PSA level. So, you know, it's very hard. It's very hard to avoid this stuff. Your company, Quizify, where can people go to find more information about it if they're interested in learning more? At Quizify.com, two Zs in Quizify. And you can actually, without even letting, you know, without even us knowing who you are, you can play four questions right on our homepage. Guaranteed, you will learn something about healthcare and, and yourself from those four questions that you didn't already know. So for instance, uh, if you have a heartburn and you're taking uh, a proton pump inhibitor, meaning Nexium, Prilosec, or Prevacid, and you, you play our quiz right on the homepage, you'll learn that these pills that you've probably been taking for a year or two or three are not supposed to be taken uh, for the long term because in the long term, they can cause heart attacks, bone fractures, magnesium deficiency, kidney problems, and a host of other things. Well, now that you know that, you switch to Zantac or Tubbs. It's that simple. So 99% is learning and only 1% is having to make the behavior change. Whereas in wellness, 1% is learning and 99% is actually having to figure out how to you know, change behavior, which of course is extremely difficult in those cases. Al Lewis, thank you so much for being on the Relentless Health Value Podcast today. Well, thank you very much for having me, Stacey. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.